Growing up in Nebraska, Christmas always looked more or less the same to me from year to year. We would typically go to Mass on Christmas Eve. Uh, we'd almost always end up in the overflow Mass in the gym at my old grade school. We'd then go home, uh, go to bed, and we would wake up to filled stockings and presents under our Christmas tree. We'd wait for everyone to wake up and make their way to the living room, and then we would open everything. And I mean everything, down to the weird little presents that my mom's students gave her. And after that, we would usually eat my dad's homemade cinnamon rolls. I always knew that people celebrated Christmas in different ways with their own families, but Christmas with my family was all I ever knew, until I got married. My husband and I spent our first Christmas together, last Christmas, with his family in Peru. And guys, it was so different than what I'm used to. I mean, mass was the same. We still went on Christmas Eve. It was in Spanish, but I recognized a lot of it. But when we got back to his parents' house after mass, there was this huge party. Everyone was dressed up, they were dancing, laughing. We ate this massive meal at like 11 at night. And then at midnight, everyone prayed in Our Father together. And then the party continued. We went outside, we watched fireworks in the neighborhood, we sang songs, we danced some more, we played games. I'm honestly not even sure how late people stayed up. I went to bed around 3.30 in the morning. Anyway, it was a totally different Christmas than I had ever experienced before, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful in its own way. This week on CNA Newsroom, we wanted to talk with some other people about their own Christmas experiences that might be unfamiliar to you. Christmas experiences that are unfamiliar to you, but still so special to them. First, we talk with the former chaplain of San Quentin State Prison in California. Then, a Catholic who has spent several Christmases in the South Pole. And finally, we'll hear the story of Christmas in space. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. My name is Kate Oliveira, and I'm your host this week. Stay with us. Prison is probably the last place people think of when they think about being home for the holidays. But for more than two million Americans, Christmas behind bars is a reality this year. It'll be a quiet Christmas. Prisons across the country are on lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic. But in years past, Christmas in prison, well, it wasn't all bad. It wouldn't seem like it, but it was actually fun and kind of festive in San Quentin. This is Father George Williams. He's a Jesuit in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and for the past nine years, he has been chaplain at San Quentin State Prison. We would have uh, Christmas Eve mass, and of course we can't do it at midnight in the prison, so it usually be around um, between six and seven. Interestingly, the uh, for some reason, the Protestant chaplain really didn't celebrate Christmas very much, so a lot of the guys who were accustomed to going to the Protestant chapel would also join us, and so, so we always had a big crowd. Many times, the Archbishop of San Francisco would join for Christmas Eve Mass. We had a great choir. Uh, in fact, they, um, a couple years in a row, they, pr- they recorded Christmas songs that they produced and sang, so they were really talented, and so we had great music. Holiday. Stay fidei 
It was just kind of a time for people to, uh, to get together and have community. Christmas in prison could never replace Christmas with family and friends. Father Williams said a lot of inmates struggled with that. Needless to say, prison um, is one of the last places you really want to be. At, at Christmas, it's hard. Um, people you know, want to be with their families, with their kids, if they have kids, um, and, and they can't. So um, it, it, in some ways, it can be very painful, but I always found that you know, keeping busy and having something to do to celebrate was good because a lot of times a lot of guys would just kind of want to go to their cells and just pull the covers over their heads and sleep through it and get it over with. But um, when they did engage, I think they found it much more um, enjoyable than, you know, being alone and miserable would be. And Father Williams said Christmas celebrated in prison actually helped him tap into the true spirit of the season. I, I, really, I always enjoyed it because I thought, um, you know, there's a sentimentality around Christmas, but to me, that was the real Christmas because that was, you know, kind of where Jesus chose to be. It was like, you know, in the margins with the, the outcasts. Jesus was um, born kind of on the, uh, you know, the, the, the bad side of town in a way, you know, and, and poverty. And the people who came were shepherds. And in those days, shepherds were not kind of reputable people. They were more like day laborers who couldn't get any other kind of work. So they would be hired to stay up all night and watch the sheep. So it was kind of like um, very much like being the, the prisoners. You know, I mean, they were the ones he came to first. Prison ministry wasn't on Father Williams' radar when he entered the Jesuit novitiate in 1987. But he says his superiors at the time encouraged him to branch out and try different ministries, things that were unfamiliar, maybe even scary. One of the options was to work in a local prison. This was outside of Boston. And I thought to myself, that sounded absolutely terrifying to me. It was the last place on earth I would ever have wanted to go. So I I thought, well, all right, I'll, I'll go. So I, I went, and from the day I walked in, I really, I loved it. I just, I found, um, I wasn't uncomfortable. I found that I kind of was drawn to the guys and the stories that they shared, and kind of their, they were just, their humanity. It wasn't, like, I didn't see criminals. I just saw people like myself who had had, made bad choices, and also had had bad cards dealt to them in life at times. And so um, I just sort of felt an, an affinity for them right away, and that remained. Father Williams said every day was a little different with prison ministry. His schedule was dictated by the pastoral needs of the inmates he served. Basically, the, the work involves a lot of one-on-one contact with prisoners. Either they would come to the chapel or I would go out to the yard where they hang out and talk, or I'd go to their housing units where their cells are. And so I, you know, I could talk to them pretty much anywhere in the prison. Um, and it's just kind of being present to them. San Quentin State Prison has some 4,000 prisoners. So there's always some sort of crisis for Father Williams to respond to. There was a lot of, um, you know, just a lot of pastoral counseling and care that went on in terms of helping people deal with grief and loss. I mean, it's bad enough if you're in prison and grieving the loss of your freedom, but then if your mother dies or your brother or sister overdoses or something, it's just really, um, really gut-wrenching sadness that people have to deal with. And, but it wasn't always that. I mean, it, was, it was also, there were lots of laughs, too. I mean, there were things that were really kind of funny and um, that were we had to laugh at. He said there were also a lot of moments of beauty and reflection in San Quentin, too, particularly while he was ministering to the more than 700 inmates on death row. And they were never going to get out of prison. Uh, they're probably never going to get executed, either, because we have a moratorium on it. But 
but it was a very harsh environment and they didn't get to come out of their cells um, very much at all. So I would go cell to cell there and I would have these small, I could have services, but only for small numbers at a time in a very secure area on death row. I enjoyed that work a lot because, um, well, the guys were interesting and, and a lot of them, you know, they're very thoughtful. Some, not all, but, you know, reflecting on their lives. And, um, and I'd asked him probably about six months ago, um, you know, what do you think about when you wake up in the morning here on death row? And, and one guy said, well, when I wake up, I just feel gratitude that <laughs> I thought, well, that's the last thing I expected to hear, you know, on, um, on death row. Um, and I explained, he said, you know, I just feel like, you know, I, I'm not the horrible person I was when I did the crime that got me here. And I, I'm grateful that I feel that God's forgiven me and that there are people in my life who I love and who love me. And I just thought it was really beautiful that you could find in the midst of all of that a kind of stark emptiness, um, you know, purpose and joy in life. Because um, I think a lot of people I know out here in the free world really are miserable sometimes and not grateful. Father Williams retired from prison ministry in August. This will be his first Christmas outside of prison in 27 years. But he said he can carry on the spirit of Christmas at San Quentin. I think people may be surprised that when you strip away all the stuff that we normally do, that's a lot of it's just kind of busy and, and crazy making. Um, it actually makes space for, for what Christmas really is. And I think now, this year, more than any year, I think, People really need hope and people need light. And that's exactly what you need in prison. I mean, the one thing that keeps the guys going is hope. So I have a feeling that people may be pleasantly surprised this year when Christmas rolls around that they actually have the space to um, to let the holiday inside. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. North Pole sits a magic workshop filled with elves hard at work to meet their Christmas deadline. Reindeer outside fill up on hay before their cross-continental travel. And of course, one Mr. Claus sits in a cottage nearby, drinking hot chocolate as he checks on his list for the second time. Down in the South Pole sits another workshop of sorts, McMurdo Station, the hub of the U.S. Antarctic program. And while it shares the frigid temperatures of the North Pole and Santa's legendary workshop, McMurdo Station isn't quite as, well, picturesque. One of its nicknames is Mud Town or Dirt Town, especially after, you know, probably the first of December. Obviously, that's summer down in Antarctica. Uh, temperatures start warming up into the mid mid upper 20s, and with 24 hours of sunlight, all the snow starts melting. So you end up with a lot of mud and uh, and running uh, running streams of water through McMurdo. So it's, it's kind of not what you'd expect, if, you know, if you've never been down there. This is Robert Malenix. He's Catholic and he works as a meteorologist with a NASA contractor. He's been traveling to Antarctica for work on and off since 1993. For us, us that have gone down there, we call it the ice. That's kind of a slang term, so I'm sure I'll forget and say the ice sometime in this conversation. Robert has made a total of eight trips to the ice. Each trip begins in mid-November and runs through early or mid-January. So when he's at McMurdo Station, he's there for Christmas. Robert remembers the first few Christmases on the ice were pretty difficult. 
His kids back home in Texas were still young, and that made it hard to be away. But Robert found comfort in the fact that even though he was far from home, he was still able to receive communion. McMurdo has a chapel on site, the Chapel of the Snows, and for many years, priests from the Diocese of Christ Church in New Zealand would travel to McMurdo at the invitation of the U.S. National Science Foundation to minister to Catholics there. We had the probably the only place in the world where you would go to midnight mass and have to wear, you, you could uh, sometimes have to wear sunglasses inside the church uh, because the sun was so bright. The Chapel of the Snows faces south, and it, at midnight, with the sun not going down, the sun comes right through the uh, the window uh, behind the altar. We haven't had a priest down since 2015, but back when we did, we had the Blessed Sacrament reserved in a little room to the side, and we still have, I guess, what you'd call the Catholic area off to the side where we, even though there's there are no, the Blessed Sacrament's not present in the tabernacle, we still have a little prayer table and a crucifix and some icons and things like that. No Catholic priest means Christmas on the ice is even more challenging for Robert. Last Christmas, he led a few other Catholics in a liturgy of the word service. This last year, we also uh, celebrated the Office of the Readings from the litur- Liturgy of the Hours uh, in the early morning hours and, uh, you know, said some, some morning prayers. And we actually sang the Salve Regina at the, uh, uh, at the end of our little service. And actually the Protestant chaplain, Chaplain Branch, who was down there with us actually joined us in, in the singing of that, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. This last year, having a community of Catholics down there and, and you know, the, the chaplain supporting us, it, it was a lot easier. When Robert is not at McMurdo for Christmas, he's home in Texas with his family. But Christmas will be smaller and quieter this year because of the pandemic. He said Catholics who are unable to attend Mass this Christmas because of COVID-19 restrictions, can still do a lot to make the day as liturgical as possible from home. My job actually takes me to other places where you can't receive the sacraments or there's no churches for a couple of months. Well, unfortunately, yeah, I have a, some experience with that. But I, I'd say the main thing is, is that, you know, just try to be as liturgical as possible, you know, as you can as a lay person for the season. Try to read the, you know, the the daily mass readings, especially during Advent, and as you approach Christmas, just just try to, you know, even if you're not doing a liturgy of the word and confidior and all that, at least at least read the, you know, the mass readings for that day and, and contemplate on them and and say a rosary. I mean, that's that's kind of the way I've sort of, you know, sort of done things over the years. He asked for prayers for the future of the historic Chapel of the Snows at McMurdo Station. McMurdo is under construction, and the current plan is to tear down the chapel. And in its place, uh, in in a big building, just like an airport sort of chapel, or not even an airport, maybe a hospital chapel that has room for about three people, so that we really couldn't have communal celebrations in it. So we have a petition going to uh, ask them to reconsider and, and leave the current chapel in place. So... That, that's really important, I think, for people going to the ice to be able to have communal celebrations and someplace to appropriately celebrate it. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle Arosa. Hi, everyone. This is Father John Paul Mary, the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word. I'm the chaplain for EWTN employees. You may remember me from episode 18, The Pirate Nun. 
If you enjoyed listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk as much as I do, and I have to say it's the highlight of my week, you can subscribe to both of these shows and get them delivered straight to your phone as soon as they're posted. Just search on your favorite podcast app for CNA Newsroom, tap the subscribe button, and then do the same for CNA Editor's Desk. Both shows are available on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you this day, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now back to the episode. Every time a rocket launched with an astronaut going into space, someone would bring a television from home, which was no trivial thing to do, because televisions were not particularly portable back then. This transmission is coming to you approximately halfway between the moon and the Earth. I hope it's a, a time for people who remember to remember how magic that moment was. Guy Consomagno is a PhD astronomer. He's done postdoctoral work at Harvard and MIT. He's also the director of the Vatican Observatory. As an accomplished scientist, whose work is known all over the world, he likes to reminisce about where it all started, growing up in the 1960s, when he, like so many millions during that era, would crowd around a grainy TV set to watch astronauts blast off for the stars. These were moments that marked my life and had since I was a little kid. Even as a teenager, Guy was interested in science. He was also passionate about his faith and actually seriously considered becoming a Catholic priest at one point. And God was very clear then, no, that was not what he wanted me to do. So I went off and did science for 20 years. And then God said, okay, now you're ready. Only be a brother, not a priest. Today, Guy is a Jesuit brother, which means he's taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to help him live out a life of service to God's people. But back in 1968, Brother Guy was just, well, he was still just Guy. He was just 16 years old, but he remembers that Christmas like it was yesterday. It was the first Christmas that humans had ever spent in space. Roger. Please be informed there is a Santa Claus. The United States launched the Apollo program in 1965, in response to President John F. Kennedy's 1961 challenge to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. The Soviet Union had been making strides in their space program, and there were rumors that they would beat the U.S. to the moon. NASA shifted into high gear. The genius and sweat of literally the entire nation ride the mission. The Apollo 8 mission was stunningly ambitious. The rocket they were planning to use had never carried a crew before. A recent unmanned test mission, Apollo 6, had failed. Worst of all, in 1967, a fire in a test capsule had claimed the lives of three Apollo astronauts. To say the odds were stacked against the American Space Agency would be an understatement. The timing of the mission was critical, as the distance between the Earth and the Moon varies over time. By NASA's calculations in the fall of 1968, the optimum date for a shot at lunar orbit was just a few short months away 
in late December. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That timing put another potential hazard in the mix. If the mission failed and the astronauts were lost, that would put somewhat of a damper on Christmas, to say the least. But by December 21st, 1968, the gigantic Saturn V rocket was ready on the launch pad in Florida. The Saturn V is the most powerful vehicle ever created by humans, before or since, and it had never carried humans before. And you know, it suddenly dawned on me that this was not another Earth orbital flight. This was the accumulation of the training we had done and the decisions we had made that unless something in the last, in the next couple hours happened, this spacecraft and this rocket were going to take off and we're headed for the moon. T-minus 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have Astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders piloted the craft as it detached from the larger rocket stages and sped toward its destination. ETA, Christmas Eve. Although the launch itself largely went off without a hitch, it wasn't without setbacks later. One of the men got sick soon after takeoff, likely because of the effects of zero gravity. I'll spare you the gross details, but with the men packed in a metal can like sardines, it can't have been pleasant. The astronauts kept a running diary as they took in sights that no human had ever seen before. And it certainly would not appear to be a very inviting place to, to live or work. By Christmas Eve, Apollo 8 had reached lunar orbit. Borman, Lovell, and Anders became the first human beings to leave Earth's orbit, and the first to glimpse the far side of the moon. Oh, and not to mention they set a new speed record for the human race, 24,200 miles per hour. This is the shot seen round the world. This is the first shot of Earth, live on television. The craft had a TV camera on board, and the men would ultimately send back a total of six broadcasts, the last of which was during prime time on Christmas Eve. It's this broadcast that Brother Guy remembers so clearly. To London, Paris, Rome, West Germany, Scandinavia. They were seen in Warsaw. The mission was conducted in the plain sight of the entire world. For the Christmas Eve broadcast, NASA hadn't given the men any specific instructions on what they should say, only that they should say something appropriate. And so, with an estimated audience of one billion hanging on their every word, Bill Anders spoke first, followed by Lovell, and then by Borman. For all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. I would have expected a psalm about, you know, how uh, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. But instead to have chosen that particular reading was an act of genius that I would never have thought of. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And to hear the story of Genesis read out in that way, in that very respectful way, was fulfilling and and affirming in a way that I would never have guessed. It made a huge impact on me. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, the astronauts later said they picked the passage from Genesis partly because of its importance not just for Christians, but for many of the world's religions. It's the people of the book. The people who believe that the universe was made deliberately by God and with a logic to it, those are the places where science has flourished. I'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas on behalf of everyone in the Control Center and I'm sure everyone around the world. Hope you get a good night's sleep from here on and enjoy your Christmas dinner tomorrow. And I look forward to seeing you in Hawaii on the 28th. On Christmas morning, the astronauts ignited the craft's engine and headed for home. As they gathered speed, they feasted on a Christmas dinner of turkey, stuffing, and even small bottles of brandy. It was the night before Christmas and way out in space. The Apollo 8 crew had just won the moon race. The headsets were hung by the consoles with care in hopes that Chris A few days later, the spacecraft splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, and an aircraft carrier picked up the astronauts. They had spent the first Christmas in space, and made it home safely in time for New Year's. But this is not an end, far from it. It is part of a much longer plan. The mission was an amazing achievement that galvanized the public, as the possibility of actually making it to the lunar surface became all the more real. By July 1969, the astronauts of Apollo 11 would do just that. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. One of the many reasons that Apollo 8 left such an enduring legacy 
was a photo snapped by Bill Anders as they circled the moon. A photo that you've almost certainly seen. It was dubbed Earthrise, and today is one of the most famous photos in history. The striking image of the blue marble that is our Earth may even have contributed to the movement to launch the first Earth Day in 1970. Unfortunately, this story in some ways doesn't have a fairy tale ending. Anders, who read part of the Bible passage, said in later years that seeing the tiny earth below them actually contributed to a loss of his Catholic faith, maybe because it made everything on earth seem so small and insignificant. Also, as you might expect, not everyone was happy that the astronauts had read a Bible passage. One public atheist even filed a lawsuit against NASA, which the Supreme Court ultimately rejected. Brother Guy said all this wasn't particularly surprising. After all, prominent atheists had raised a stink just a couple years earlier when the Charlie Brown Christmas special had aired on TV. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign Everybody remembers the Charlie Brown Christmas show, which again had a faith component that shocked people. They thought, oh, you can't do that. It wasn't so much a political thing that it's become now. It shouldn't be a political thing. Faith is for everybody. And what I have found in the world of science in the last 50 years is that there's a much broader acceptance of faiths, many faiths of many people. That's the joy of having diversity in the field now. Not nearly as much as we ought to, but a heck of a lot more than we used to. To express your faith is permission for other people to express their faith. And that enriches everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? At 7.10 this evening, Martin Luther King was shot in Tennessee. 1968 was a turbulent year. The Vietnam War was in full swing. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy had been assassinated and riots were breaking out across the country, including in Washington, D.C. 1968 was a pretty terrible year in a lot of ways. There were riots outside of the Democratic National Convention. There were uh, you know, terrible tolls every day from the war in Vietnam. There was a tremendous upheaval and uncertainty. It felt like the world, the nice-safe world of the 60s had fallen apart, and we had no idea how it was going to end. And yet, at that time, we saw this little ray of hope of what the human race could do if only we put ourselves together, working together. You know, half, half a million people in one way or another worked on the Apollo program to make it all happen. You know, as this country goes through its various crises, we've been here before, we've survived before, and we can go to the moon when we put our mind to it. As you can tell, Brother Guy loves talking about this episode from history. It helps set him on the path he's on today, as a joyful practitioner of his faith, but also as an accomplished scientist. You can find a day when it's not cloudy, just pay attention to where the moon is every day, and remember that 50 odd years ago, People were up there. People walked on that surface. And the time will come when we get to go back. It is part of God's creation. And I think God is inviting us to explore that. We're going to bring our sinfulness with us. We're going to make mistakes. 
but that's also part of being alive. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by me, Kate Oliveira, and Jonah McKeown. A very special thanks this week to all of our guests. Have a very Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you next year.